brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and this episode of ACRAC will be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. We haven't done that in a while and thought it'd be fun to do it again. And also, by the way, check out their content over there. It's actually great stuff. And I will say their new episode, uh, or I mean season, actually, of The Etherist, their podcast they do, was really interesting. It's all about the kind of future of anesthesiology and staffing, and I highly recommend you check it out. And now... On to the main event. Yes, I do indeed have with me again the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another keyword episode. Now, usually, as listeners will know, we do two separate keywords, but today we're going to do one longer one just because there's a lot of material to cover, and that's maternal physiology. So we'll really be doing kind of maternal physiology parts one and two, but essentially we'll just go straight through, and I think this will be really useful. Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, of course. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, when you listen to this, it might not be Thanksgiving, but when we're recording this, it's uh, yes. just a couple days prior to Thanksgiving. So that's right. On my it mind. will certainly be Thanksgiving will certainly be over by the time um, anybody oh, listens okay, to this. So All I right. hope you had Merry a Christmas. wonderful Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Yeah. <laughs> hope you had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I um, apologize ahead of time, but we'll probably be able to do it in editing. But I have uh, two kids doing homeschool, virtual school. And uh, sometimes they have PE and trumpet lessons. So if you hear a cacophony in the background, it's probably my boys doing school remote. It'll be a good background music. All right. So let's jump in. What are we going to cover today? Okay. So today, like you said earlier, we're going to talk about um, maternal physiology, particularly um, changes during pregnancy. And if you go to the ABA content outline, and this is an advanced topic, we've done a lot of basic topics, but now I'm starting to incorporate some of the advanced topics. So it's under, it's on page 38 of the ABA outline for your uh, advanced exam content. And it's under maternal physiology, uh, especially under pregnancy. And this is what the board wants you to know to be an incredibly competent board certified anesthesiologist. They want you to know effects of pregnancy on uptake and distribution. And I'm assuming that means volatile anesthetics and drugs. It doesn't expound on that, but that's my assumption. And then respiratory. So anatomy, lung volumes and capacities, oxygen consumption, ventilation, blood gases, acid base. 
cardiovascular changes, so aortic cable compression, regulation of uterine blood flow, renal changes, changes with your liver, including albumin to globulin ratio, protein binding, the GI tract, so gastric acidity, motility, anatomic position, and the GE sphincter function, and then hematology, so blood volume, plasma proteins, coagulation, and then the placenta, so placental exchange of drugs, of oxygen, of carbon dioxide, blood flow, and its barrier function. So it is a pretty big topic, and I think it makes sense to kind of break it up into two. So I'll tell you what I think is part one and what's part two. So now if you look as to what is being tested, uh, in 2013, they tested for maternal physiology blood volume. And then respiratory changes was tested in 2008, 2011, 2016, and 2020, and subcategorized that. That include lung volumes and just generic respiratory changes. And then for maternal physiology, peripartum changes in cardiac output and hemodynamic effects, and that was tested in 2011, 14, and 15. So GE, not going to the gastric system, so gastric function and GE reflux was tested in 08 and 2010. Uh, hematological changes of pregnancy, and that includes coagulation changes. That was tested in 08, 2010, 2011, and 2020. Placental ion exchange was tested in 2013. And then placental transfer of drugs. And they broke this up into three categories. So locals, which makes sense because we give so much local anesthetic in OB. And then anesthetic drugs. So that's like basically every drug we give. And then anticholinergic. And that was tested in 09, 11, 12, and 15. So if you wanted me to predict what will be on your ITE or what will be on your advanced exam, this is my best guess. I think you're most likely to see hemodynamic changes of pregnancy, hematologic changes of pregnancy, and then placental transfer of drugs. And of those two, I think or of those three, I think the hemodynamic changes and then the placental transfer of drugs are probably the high, highest yields of everything we're going to discuss today. So if there is anything that I really want you to pay attention to, it would be those two things, the hemodynamic changes and then the drugs that cross the placenta. And then I would really recommend that when you're studying a drug like propofol, ketamine, uh, sevoflurane, anything, always add the placental transfer to the list. And I've tried really hard when we're doing keywords to always add a question about whether or not the drug uh, does cross the placenta, because it's a very common tested thing. But it's also really good to know as an anesthesiologist, if you do OB, even if you're going to do OB from time to time, it's just good to know what drugs cross the placenta and which ones don't. So that would be considered part one if we were dividing this up into two topics. And then the second half, this would be like not as likely to be tested, but definitely comes up. Um, it includes changes in the respiratory system, changes in like the gastric system, renal changes, changes to blood volume, and then what I just call hodgepodge, like these kind of things that change in pregnancy but don't really fall under a specific category. And again, I'm not saying it's not high yield because you definitely see this from time to time, but it's just really hard to categorize it and say so you're definitely going to get a, like a question about the renal changes or the blood volume, but you're going to get one or two quick two questions in that whole part two category. Okay, so moving on to part one. So my first key point is about the placental transfer of drugs. So what I always think about is that most drugs actually cross the placenta. And the ones that do not, they're usually, they're usually large, they're ionized, they're hydrophilic, or they're protein bound. So for me, and what I tell my residents, I think it's always easier to remember what drugs do not cross because for the, mass, the vast majority of times, they will cross. And I actually looked up the mnemonic unprepared. So the mnemonic, to remember this, is he is going nowhere soon. 
And it's funny because I can never remember the mnemonic because I can never link it to OB. And I was like, how can I remember this for OB and placenta? And then I thought about it this way. I figured I have three kids. And if I had a fourth one with my husband, I would hope that he is going nowhere soon because I need a lot of help with that fourth one. Not like we are. I'm just saying. So if you're trying to link it, just think. You know, if I was having a fourth kid, I would hope my husband that he, my husband is going nowhere soon because <laughs> we're having a fourth child. So those drugs, the H is heparin, the I is insulin, the G is glycopyrrolate, the N is actually all the non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs, so vecuronium, rocuronium, and then the S is succinylcholine. So if you can remember that mnemonic and those drugs and that one class of drugs, you'll get this question right the vast majority of times. Sometimes they make it more granular, and they actually want you to know why that specific drug won't cross the placenta, which is a little bit trickier. But sometimes they're very straightforward, and the mnemonic will get you the answer correctly. So this is an example of that. So this is the question. Which of the following drugs does not pass the placenta easily? A, atomidate, B, ephedrine, C, atropine, D, glycopyrrolate. And as you said, you if you know that mnemonic, you can get this by knowing glycopyrrolate is the G, the going in your mnemonic. Um, and, uh, you know, the other way that you could maybe think about this is that, you know, we give glycopyrrolate along with neostigmine as reversal because, or preferentially actually over atropine sometimes because we know it won't cross the blood-brain barrier. And if you know it won't cross the blood-brain barrier because it's, high, it's ionized, then you may be able to make that connection too that it probably wouldn't cross the placenta. So that's a, another way you may get that if you realize that's why we give it um, preferentially over atropine if we can. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's a great point. Thank you. So here's another question. Again, these next four or five questions are going to be in a similar stream. So which local anesthetic has the most rapid metabolism in maternal and fetal blood? So basically, which one isn't going to cross the most? And if it does, what's broken down by the fetus? So A is lidocaine, B is bupivacaine, C is rapivacaine, and D is chlorprocaine. And honestly, here, and I don't do a lot of OB anesthesia, uh, I wouldn't uh, be able to kind of break this down really well, other than that I know we think of chlorprocaine as being very fast onset and offset and so if I had to guess here, that's what I would say is that it's probably rapidly metabolized and that contributes to its rapid onset and offset, um, or at least the rapid offset. Um, so that's what I would say. Yeah. And A, B, and C, they're all ester locals. So they're all degraded by the liver, whereas chlor- chlorprocaine is one of the... Actually, I got that wrong. Sorry. Back that up. Lidocaine, rapivacaine, rapivacaine are, are all amides. And so as such, they're degraded by the liver, whereas chloroprocaine is one of the very few esters that we use. And that's actually one of the reasons why we use it is because even if some of it did cross the placenta, the fetus actually has esterases and can break down chloroprocaine, whereas the fetus and neonates have very immature livers. It takes a few months for them to deliver to mature. So they can't degrade the other locals as well. And the other question, I couldn't find one, um, but it's one that I've seen in the past is in a stat cesarean section and you're delivering for fetal indications, which drug will you use in the epidural? And they give two others, but the two that make it hard to choose are lidocaine and corporocaine because um, we use both of them. And I would say in my practice, we do just because we have lidocaine John up, give lidocaine, but the actual textbook answer that they want you to use is chlorprocaine because if any did cross the placenta, the fetus could degrade it. Um, the only caveat of that, and I'm saying this just because 
we had this actually quite recently, is someone who has a pseudocolon esterase deficiency. They don't have the esterases and they can't break it down. So you have to be a little bit careful in that population. But that's a rare exception to the rule. Okay, so let's move on to the next question. So the next question is passive diffusion of substances across the placenta is enhanced by all of the following except, and we all hate except questions. And I know they're going away, but again, I, I pull older test questions, so that's why it exists, but we can still learn from it. So passive diffusion of substances across the placenta is enhanced by all of the following except. So A, low molecular weight of the substance. B, high water solubility of the substance. D, low degree of ionization of the substance. D, large concentration gradient of the drug. And I would say, you know, just as a test-taking strategy, if you ever do see these, and, and as you said, Jillian, these are supposed to be going away on any kind of, you know, big standardized test. But if you do see one, you really need to rephrase it in your mind or even rewrite it on your own paper or if you have a notepad or something because, you know, you want to avoid that confusion where you might get, you might know the answer but get it wrong because you kind of lost the accept part. So what you're looking for here is they're saying passive diffusion of substances is enhanced by all the following accepts. So you're looking at which one does not enhance the diffusion of substances across the placenta. So if you head into your answer choices like that, you're going to be better off, which doesn't enhance diffusion. And so what we know is that lipid solubility will. And so if you think about water solubility, choice B, that wouldn't because it's the opposite of lipid solubility. So that's your answer. You can then eliminate the other ones, low molecular weight. Well, that would, right, the smaller, the better in terms of diffusion low degree of ionization. That would be, as we, as we just talked about, things like glycopyrrolate that are ionized are less likely. And then large concentration gradient in general is always going to help with diffusion. So the A, C, and D will help and B is the one that won't. Yeah. And so it's uh, lipid solubility. So if something's very uh, lipid soluble, it will cross the placenta much easier than something that's water soluble. So the next question, administration of succinylcholine one milligram per kilogram to a pregnant woman rarely causes fetal neuromuscular blockade. Which characteristics of succinylcholine best explains this phenomenon? So this is the type of question where it's not just enough that you know that it doesn't cross the placenta. Now they're asking you why. So A, high protein binding, B, ionization, C, lack of placental diffusion, passive, sorry, lack of passive placental diffusion, D, lipid solubility, E, metabolism in the fetal liver. So here you kind of have to know the mechanism. Um, and so you, you either know it or you don't. And uh, it is an ionized compound, a quaternary ammonium ion. So probably, um, you know, that's a good guess. You also may just know that Ionization is something that's gonna gonna have a role here. Lack of passive placental transfusion is a little tricky because you know it doesn't really cross the placenta very well, but it's not. You have to. The question is not does it not cross well. The question is why. Um, but you may get tripped up by that lipid solubility. Um, again, that's you should be able to eliminate because that would help uh, it get across the placenta. Um, you, as you already mentioned, Jillian, metabolism, the fetal liver is pretty underdeveloped. So it's probably a good guess that metabolism by the liver is not a great thing to rely on. And sex um, isn't metabolized by the liver anyway. Right. So uh, that, and that would be another great way to get rid of that one. So you're, you can narrow this down some, but you really want to know that it's ionization. 
Right. So it gets down between high protein binding and ionization. If you could parse it down to two answers, A and B, and then they're really asking if you know the structure, molecular structure of succinylcholine. So it's a bit of a mean, mean question, but one that does definitely come up. All right. Oh. So the next question here is which of the following drugs is least likely to cross the placenta? And this is where your mnemonic comes in handy. So A, lidocaine, B, meperidine, C, midazolam, D, thiopental, E, vecuronium. And so here's where, as you said, that mnemonic will help. You should pretty easily be able to recognize that vecuronium is a non-depolarizer, which was one of our um, letters in our mnemonic. And so you should be able to just right off the bat get that and not really have to worry about the others. But if you did go through, you'd realize none of those others, A through D, are in the mnemonic. Right. And so here's the last one about placental drug transfer, and it is pertinent to local anesthetics. And again, they do ask a lot about local anesthetics and their ability to cross the placenta, which is why I put so many questions in. But following maternal epidural injection, fetal exposure to chloroprocaine is lower than fetal exposure to bupivacaine for which of the following reasons? A, chloroprocaine is metabolized by plasma cholinesterase. B, chloroprocaine is more protein bound. C, chloroprocaine is not readily absorbed from the epidural space. D, the ionized fraction of chloroprocaine in the fetal circulation is smaller. And E, the PKA of chloroprocaine is less than that of bupivacaine. Yeah, so I think this is a little tough if you don't know that chloroprocaine, and you already mentioned this, is metabolized by uh, esterases. Now, it's specifically plasma cholinesterase, but if you didn't know that, then this would be a tough question, I think. Um, if you do know that, then it's going to make you want to go for A, which should be correct. Um, the other choices, let's see, what could you really eliminate? I mean, PKA is one of those things for me that I just have a hard time wrapping my head around, and I either have to memorize things about PKA or not, so I can't kind of work my way through that one. Um, you certainly could get rid of C because you know it is absorbed easily, Um from the epidural space and it does cross over to the placenta across the placenta. Um, so I think those would be, those would be the, the big things. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. And I also think it's just really important to know that really the only local anesthetic that we use in practice that is an ester and that is degraded by plasma cholinesterases is chlorprocaine. Um, there is cocaine, but we don't really use it. The ENT use it more than we do. And then there is, is it prilocaine, the hurricane spray, but we've yeah. gotten away from it because it causes methemoglobin urea. Um, so it's just a good thing to know the difference between the esters and the amides and locals and how they're degraded. And you'll answer yeah. a lot of test questions correctly, just knowing that basic. Yeah. And I think you may have said methemoglobinuria, but methemoglobinemia. Right? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it may also, who knows, <laughs> yeah, maybe you've right, got right, methemoglobin right. in your urine too. Yeah. All right. So that moves us on to our next key point, which is the hemodynamic changes in pregnancy. And it's pretty fair game to ask about the changes in cardiac output, uh, CVP, SVR, your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and then your left ventricular and diastolic volume. So cardiac output at term is increased 40 to 50% over pre-pregnant values. And as someone who does OB anesthesia, it's hard not to geek out over this stuff because I find it fascinating. I mean, it's really amazing, right? So if someone comes in at term and they're fairly asymptomatic, you know, they probably have a pretty good heart because it's, it's basically its own stress test. But at term, your cardiac output is 40, 50% over your pre-pregnant values. 
during labor, they're actually, this increases 10 to 25% even more. So during labor, you're looking at like a 50 to 75% increase over like pre-pregnancy values. Um, and then your cardiac output is actually increased by as much as 80% immediately after delivery. So that's from like your pre-pregnant values. So if you're going to have an issue in terms of like cardiac issue, it's almost always post-delivery. And that's when we worry about it. It's like not so much like while they're in labor or, or like during the section, it's like that immediate postpartum period because your cardiac output increases 80%. And by 24 hours postpartum, your cardiac output should return to pre-labor values. So like that 40, 50% or pre-pregnancy values. And then by two weeks postpartum, you should get back to like pre-pregnant levels. And I only put that in there because that is actually quite a common question, like the timing, like at what point do you go back to like pre-pregnant levels in terms of cardiac output? And it's confusing because almost everything is six weeks postpartum, but cardiac output is actually two weeks postpartum. So if you see that question, I don't want you to get confused and put the six weeks as the two weeks. So what about CVP, Jed? Do you remember if there's a change with CVP, central venous pressure? I believe not. Right. And wedge pressure? Also, I believe not. Right. So those are the two that really stay the same in terms of the hemodynamic parameters, but your left ventricular and diastolic volume, your ejection fraction, your heart rate, and your cardiac output all increase. Um, there's only one, well, not maybe only, but there's one that they ask a lot that does decrease. And do you remember what that one is that decreases? Um, there's... In terms of hemodynamics, I mean, certainly, I think your blood pressure decreases, your um, CO, your PCO2 decreases. I'm not sure. It's exactly one of the things we can measure. Like, it's like a cardiac output, a wedge pressure. Like, of the measurable mm. things, there's one thing that does decrease, and that's um, SVP, systemic vascular SVR. pressures. SVR, thank you, resistance decrease. Yeah. Decrease. So that's the one that does decrease. Right. And that's um, actually why you get the yeah. blood pressure decrease. Right. So usually it's no change or an increase, but SBR, thank you, decreases. All right. So here are a few questions. Oh, sorry. You were going to say something. No, just that, you know, I think this stuff actually makes sense if you think about it. So for example, how could you have such an increase in blood volume, but no CVP change, right? And the answer is only if your heart is increasing its EF, right? So that, and your cardiac output, you're, you have to be able to move all that extra volume forward efficiently in order to not have your CVP increase. So it all kind of fits together if you think about it. Right. All right. So here's a question uh, regarding this uh, key point. So cardiac output increases dramatically during pregnancy and delivery. The cardiac output returns to non-pregnant values by how long postpartum? A, 12 hours, B, one day, C, two weeks, D, six months. And so you you gave us this uh, two weeks. Good yeah. to know. And I've been seeing this question more and more, which is why I put it on there and I stressed it. Okay, so next question. Cardiac output is greatest, A, during the first trimester of pregnancy, B, during the third trimester of pregnancy, C, during labor, D, immediately after the delivery of the newborn. Yeah, and I, so I think the key here is you, what you told us is when um, blood volume is the greatest, which is immediately after delivery of the newborn. And again, assuming a good heart you have to therefore have your highest cardiac output be there or else you'd be backing up and going into heart failure. So a woman with a healthy heart is going to have the highest cardiac output when she has the highest blood volume, which is going to be immediately after delivery of the newborn. Right. And that highest blood volume that Jed just referred to is actually from the auto transfusion. And 
sometimes people don't really understand what that means, but basically what it means is that the, the uterus gets a phenomenal amount of blood per minute. It's around 750 milliliters per minute of blood. So when you deliver, you don't, the uterus starts to constrict down and like almost a liter of blood goes from the uterus out to the periphery. And so your heart has to speed up to basically keep up with the huge increase in blood in the vasculature, which was in the uterus. So that's why that happens. All right. Uh, which of the following cardiovascular parameters is decreased at term? So A, central venous pressure, B, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, C, systemic vascular resistance, D, left ventricular and systolic volume, which is decreased at term. And we, we discussed this and uh, systemic vascular resistance is decreased, which is why a normal blood pressure for a pregnant woman is going to be a little lower than for a non-pregnant woman. Um, it's also why high blood pressure is even worse than it may seem. Right. Or even what we might seem normal in the pregnancy is actually a little on the high end. Uh, and just to reiterate, so CVP, there's no change. Your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, there'd be no change. Your left ventricular end systolic volume is increased along with an increase in stroke volume, ejection fraction, heart rate, and cardiac output. And I know sometimes it's hard because you just think it's a list of things you have to memorize, but you can intuit it. Like Joe was saying, if you kind of think about everything that's going on in pregnancy. It makes a little bit more sense. And so rather than just memorizing these lists, think it through, think it out, and you'll be able to answer the questions correctly. Have you seen the queen? I digress, but the queen's gambit on Netflix or heard of it. I haven't, but everybody keeps recommending it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's about this like savant chess player. And there's this one scene where a guy tells to her, you need to set it up and think it out. And she's like, I don't want to set it up and think it out. (laughs) So it's kind of like that. Yeah. You can just like, you know, memorize it or you can like set it up and think it out. So I do recommend like, it's easier to get these questions correctly if you think it through than just trying to memorize Okay, so next question. Uterine blood flow at term pregnancy typically increases to about A, 100 milliliters per minute, B, 250 milliliters per minute, C, 500 milliliters per minute, D, 750 milliliters per minute. Yeah, and you you mentioned this, and so um, I know it because of what you said. I don't think I would have known. I would have known it was high-ish. I'm not sure that before hearing you give it away, I would have known if it was 500 to 750. So I think this is one of those things you got to kind of know. You you should be able to know that it's on the higher end, but you got to kind of memorize the exact number. Yeah, and the way I think about it is it wouldn't really stress the heart out too much if it was maybe 250 to 500 milliliters per minute, but 750 is a huge, a fairly big volume to put that much extra stress on the cardiovascular system. And just for a reference, before pregnancy, like just normal non-pregnant women, it's about 50 to 100 milliliters per minute, so it's fairly insignificant. So it does increase significantly. Okay, so last question in this category. An asymptomatic 38-year-old woman is scheduled for elective cesarean delivery. The preoperative EKG shows left axis deviation that was not present one year ago. The most appropriate next step is to A, postpone the procedure and consult a cardiologist, B, postpone the procedure and obtain an echocardiogram, C, Proceed with the procedure after administration of digitalis. D, proceed with the procedure but avoid inhalational agents. E, proceed without intervention since this is a normal finding. So I feel like if you don't know anything about this and you get this question or these kinds of questions that give you a bunch of interventions and then a do nothing and just proceed, if you have to guess, like if you really don't know, go with do nothing and proceed. It is so common that these come up and that that is the answer. And I think they're really, 
the test is trying to push you to learn or to think about the less intervention can be more. Uh, so again, I'm not telling you that's always going to be the answer, but if you don't know, it's a pretty good guess. And that is the answer here um, because left axis deviation can just be a normal finding in pregnancy. Yeah. And do you know why? It actually does make sense, at least in my head. Well, the heart is go- is getting bigger, right? So you actually have an increase in size of the left ventricle as it is getting stronger and pushing out that blood. At least that's how I think of it. Uh, whether yeah. it's and actually I also think if the diaphragm pushes up a little bit, there is just like a mechanical shift of where the heart sits, like a minimal one, but enough to cause a little bit of left, left axis deviation. Oh, interesting. I wonder if I'm right or not. I actually don't know. I, that's what I have in my head, but whether there's actually an increase in size, I mean, there's clearly an increase in size because there's an increase in volume. So that's part of it is that the left ventricle is going to be larger when it's full because you have more blood in there. Now, whether that is uh, actually, whether there's any remodeling at all and whether the heart actually gains muscle or not, I don't know the answer. Maybe somebody, a listener can write it and tell us if they yeah. know. I actually think it's something that's currently ongoing and under study. Like there's, I know at our, like Jason Vaught at our institution is doing a lot of studies like preeclampsia and the effects on the heart. And like, if it doesn't actually like cause muscle atrophy or remodeling. So it's actually, I don't think it's as cut and dry as we know, or we don't know, but I do know it's good to know that there is left access deviation. Right. And it sounds like there may be two factors. There's at least the one you mentioned, which is a little bit of change of of kind of position of the heart. And then certainly there's an increase in filling of the heart, which may actually do it in and of itself, but there may, maybe, maybe not an actual change in muscle mass. Okay. All right, so key point three with hemodynamic changes in pregnancy, it's aortic cable compression, which can lead to supine hypotension syndrome. So aortic cable compression syndrome is it's a compression of the abdominal aorta and the inferior vena cava, so the IVC, by a pregnant uterus when someone lies on their back. So like if they're laying supine, the uterus can just literally mechanically compress the IVC and the aorta, which leads to decrease in preload and then hypotension. Um, and they say it's a frequent cause of low maternal blood pressure. As someone who does OB anesthesia, I'm not sure how frequent it is because, you know, I do C-sections three, four, five, five times a day. And I don't think that is as big of a contribution to hypotension as we think, but it can be. And I have seen women with profound supine hypotension syndrome to the fact where like you almost can't do a C-section because just laying them back, they almost like go into cardiovascular collapse. So you have to like sit them up and put them to their side. Um, so it definitely can happen to an extreme, but um, so the aortic cable compression, again, is thought to be the cause of supine hypotensive syndrome. And it's characterized by all the things of hypotension. So pallor, tachycardia, sweating, nausea, hypotension, dizziness, when someone lies on her back. So for me, I actually, I know this sounds a little bit crazy, but before I ever do any type of block in someone for a C-section, I actually just lay them on their back just to see how they are at baseline. Because, you know, once you put a spinal in, you can see all those things, pallor, tachycardia, sweating, nausea from the hypotension. So I just want to see where they are at baseline. And every now and again, you'll find someone where you lay them flat on their back that is just really, really significant. Um, and they asked a fair number of questions about these. because I just think they're interesting physiological questions. So this is a type of question that you might see. So the supine hypotensive syndrome of pregnancy, A, begins at 32 weeks gestation. B, causes fetal distress by aortic cable compression. C, is corrected by Trendelenburg's position. D, is less likely following subarachnoid block than epidural block. And E, occurs in 90% of supine women at 38 to 40 weeks gestation. 
And so uh, you mentioned this, but um, the idea here is the aortal cable compression, which can cause fetal distress. So B is the right answer. Um, I think we'll get into this a little more, but 32 weeks is too late. It, it can happen before that. Trendelenburg doesn't really help, right? Because you're talking about being, uh, you need to be moved to the side, not not on your head. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of it being less likely following subarachnoid block than epidural block, it's not really related to the block. So that doesn't make sense. And then in terms of 90%, um, that strikes me as high. It's extraordinarily high. I, I actually don't know what percentage off the top of my head, but I would guess that it's less than 10%. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of follows up to one of the previous answers is aortocable compression starts to become significant in the normal pregnancy at how many weeks uh, estimated gestational age. So A, 10 weeks, B, 15 weeks, C, 20 weeks, D, 25 weeks. And so, you know, here, I guess you kind of have to know it. I think you could probably imagine 10 weeks is way too early. Um, Maybe even you think 15 weeks, this would help if you've either been pregnant or had a significant other who's been pregnant because you realize that at 10, 15 weeks, the uterus is still tiny. Um, It's really at around 20 weeks that you start to potentially see it. It rises above the, um, the uterus can rise above the pelvic. um, You see it, uh, it's like the umbilical level at 20 weeks. Exactly. So you start to, so that would be a good guess is 20 weeks because that's when things start to be a little more apparent. So the size is maybe big enough to cause some compression. I think you'd probably want to be between, you know, if you didn't know, you'd want to decide between 20 and 25 weeks here, but 20 weeks I believe is correct. So I also, yeah, it is 20 weeks and that's when it starts to, but again, it's not that common in 20 weeks, you're still pretty early on, but it can start around 20 weeks. All right. So last question in this category. So adverse effects on the mother associated with aortocable compression by the gravid uterus include A, nausea and vomiting, B, changes in cerebration, which is like mentation, C, fetal distress, D, all of the above. And again, a little test-taking strategy here. When I see that all of the above is is an answer choice, I just really quickly scan and see, are there two? Are there at least two, right? I don't try to go through one by one because if I can quickly identify two, then I know the answer is all of the above and I don't even have to read the other ones. And so that's just a good tip in general. But yes, it does in fact cause all of the above and you hopefully can can realize that, that uh, you know significant hypotension, nausea and vomiting is going to definitely be a cause. If it's bad enough, obviously changes in mentation. And then obviously if the mother is hypotensive enough, the fetus is going to be in distress as well. Right. Uh, so that leads us into what would be part two or second podcast of this topic. Um, so just to kind of summarize thus far, the highest yield topics, I think, in maternal, like the physiological changes of pregnancy, I would say placental transfer of drugs, changes in the cardiovascular system, and then changes that come from aortic cable compression, which can lead to supine hypotensive syndrome. So of this, I think those probably are the higher tested topics. But with that said, everything is fair game. And this whole podcast, I think, is, is uh, super high yield because you're just guaranteed a few questions in this whole category. Um, and I was looking through all of the OB anesthesia questions, and I would guess that 10 to 15, maybe even up to 20% of all the questions in OB anesthesia come from the genre, like the changes um, to the mother during pregnancy. I don't know if you remember that from your test taking experience, but I do know there are a fair number of questions that come from this topic alone. Absolutely. Totally agree. Okay. So key point four are respiratory changes in pregnancy. And again, I think this is even harder than the cardiovascular because to me, and I'll, someone who does OB anesthesia, I think it's a little bit harder to intuit. But um, some of the key points here is that one, 
decreased functional residual capacity is seen. And I think that is like, if you don't learn anything else, just know that pregnant women have a significantly decreased FRC. And that is important because when you have to do a stat GA section and you're putting someone to sleep, no matter how well you pre-oxygenate them, they desaturate extremely quickly because they just don't have that FRC to have that reserve of oxygen. It's just not there. So FRC is decreased. So typically it goes from 1.7 to 1.3 liters. And that's from the compression of the diaphragm um, by the uterus. So the diaphragm squishes up. So you really just minimize that FRC. And then that compression can also cause a decrease in total lung capacity, but it's minimal. It's about 5%. And you also see a decrease in excretory reserve volume. So tidal volume actually increases about 30 to 40%. And then minute ventilation also will increase. Um, and that gives an increase in pulmonary ventilation. And we need that. Pregnant women need that. It's necessary to meet the increased oxygen requirement of the body because it's not just you. Now you have to oxygenate the fetus. Um, and it reaches about 50 milliliters per minute, 20 milliliters of which goes to the reproductive tissue. So about, I don't know, what does that be like a third, not quite a third, a little less, a quarter of uh, the oxygenation requirement is now for the fetus also. So overall, the net change in maximum breathing capacity is zero. So here's a type of question that you might see. Which of the following respiratory parameters is not increased in the parturion? So A, minute ventilation, B, tidal volume, C, arterial PaO2, D, serum bicarbonate. So the answer here is going to be D, and you should be able to think that through because um, you're looking for what's not increased. So you should know that the um, you have a physiologic hyperventilation of pregnancy, which means that your CO2 is going to be a little low which means that um, your body is actually going to want to get rid of some bicarb to balance out that respiratory alkalosis. So it, the serum bicarbonate will not be increased. It will actually be a little decreased. And so that's the answer. You should also know that minute ventilation, as you just said, Jillian, is increased tidal volume as well. And arterial PaO2 is as well. And in fact, the only physiologic hyperoxia that is possible is actually with with a pregnancy or, or another significant cause of hyperventilation, but you breathe off some CO2, you make room for more O2. And so you can have, be slightly hyperoxic. Um, and listeners will know that I'm a big um, proponent of avoiding hyperoxia, but this is obviously a very physiologic hyperoxia. And uh, I remember my first year out of fellowship, out of OB anesthesia fellowship, I was maybe three months into my career as an attending, very new to Hopkins, very new as a Bayview. And I had to take a patient, a OB patient to the SICU for whatever complication. And the SICU attending is looking at the labs and he's like, oh, look, the bicarb is 20. What do you think of that? I looked at him and I was like, well, that's normal for pregnancy. And he got this big smile on his face and he said, good job. <laughs> <laughs> but he was totally testing me. <laughs> nice. That was funny. Okay. Next question. Which of the following lung volumes or capacities change the least during pregnancy? So A, tidal volume, B, functional residual capacity, C, expiratory reserve volume, D, vital capacity. So this is one you, you kind of have to know. Tidal volume, we already said, increases. FRC decreases. Expiratory reserve volume, I believe, also decreases. And vital capacity is relatively unchanged. Relatively. There might be a small change, but it says change the least. So a 5% change is pretty minimal compared to the other ones. Exactly. All right. So here's another question in the respiratory parameters of pregnancy. So normal pregnancy is associated with a decrease in each of the following except... A, expiratory reserve volume, 
B, FEV1 to FVC ratio, C, functional residual capacity, D, thoracic compliance. So again, we've talked about some of these, but expiratory reserve volume we know is decreased. And again, this is one of the, all of the following except. So we're looking for the one that is not. So we're trying to get rid of the ones that are. Uh, so extra reserve volume is functional residual capacity. We've said is thoracic compliance. So that may be a little tough, but um, that uh, in fact is decreased. So that's, we think of that as kind of being similar to significant obesity or to, you know, someone having pressure on their chest um, that causes a decrease in compliance. And it's mechanical. It's from the gravid uterus pushing up on the diaphragm. So you actually have this mechanical compression. And so you're exactly, it's much like having, for example, an insufflated abdomen during a laparoscopic procedure. So that is true. So that only leaves us with the FEV one to FVC ratio choice B as the answer, which it is. But I will also say that you should think, Oh, FEV one to FVC ratio. That's what you get in obstructive lung disease. And that, uh, you get that decreased ratio and you know pregnant women don't have obstructive lung disease. So that might help you also. Yeah. And it does look very similar to a restrictive lung pattern because you do have this mechanical obstruction of the diaphragm. So it does look like a restrictive lung pattern and your FEV1 to FVC ratio stays the same in a restrictive lung disease. So that might help yep. you remember it too. All right. So last question in this category is which of the following changes in pulmonary function best explains the more rapid rate of rise of alveolar concentration of volatile anesthetics in pregnant women than in non-pregnant women. So A, decreased functional residual capacity, B, decreased dead space ventilation, C, increased cardiac output, D, increased oxygen consumption, and E, increased pulmonary venous admixture. And I know it's a tough question, but a very, very common one, right? Like what speeds up the onset of uh, alveolar rise versus what decreases it, so... Right. And uh, I will refer listeners to the very first ever ACRAC podcast, episode one. one. I refer people all the time. It's such a good one. So if you want an in-depth discussion of what does and does not affect and how it affects inhaled induction of anesthesia, that is in that episode. We're not going to go through it all now, but I will say that I think of decreased FRC as essentially like this. There's less room for stuff to get out of the alveoli and kind of go into the storage. The FRC is like the storage. So when you pre-oxygenate, if you have a lot of FRC, you can fill it with oxygen and that it gives you a longer apneic time because then it can come back into the alveoli. But when you're doing an inhaled induction with a volatile anesthetic, you will get diffusion out of the alveoli into the FRC. So the more FRC you have, the longer it'll take for you to fill all that up. And in the meantime, your rate of rise of your concentration in the alveoli will be slow because it'll be diffusing out of the alveoli and into the FRC. So if you have less FRC, you actually will have a higher rate of rise or more rapid rate of rise of your alveolar concentration of volatile anesthetic. And so the answer is A, that decreased FRC is actually what is most responsible for the rapid rise of alveolar concentration of volatile anesthetics. Yeah, so I like that question because I think it, uh, actually fits into multiple categories. So it does fit into volatile anesthetics. It fits into that category of what increases and decreases um, alveolar rise of your volatile anesthetics and then also like maternal change of the pregnancy. So, all right. So key point four, I put this in there because it's renal changes in pregnancy 
And I know that they ask about it, but I had a really hard time finding questions. So I just wanted to give some key points. I only found one question, but I just think it's important to touch base on it because I do know that they do test this despite my lack of ability to find test questions. But so the renal system does undergo a dramatic anatomic change and functional change in pregnancy. Renal plasma flow increases about 75 to 85%, and your GFR also increases about 50%. And that's reflected by an increase in clearance of urea, creatinine, and uric acid. So because you have an increase in clearance, you should see a decrease in like the number value of your BUN, creatinine, and your um, uric acid. And then glucosuria is fairly common, and it's attributed to both the increase in GFR and a reduced renal tubular reabsorption of glucose. So this is the only question I could find, but I think it's a good one and is representative of what they might test. So which of the following is not increased during pregnancy? A, renal plasma flow, B, creatinine clearance, C, blood urea nitrogen, D, glucose excretion. And you just went through these and the answer here is C. So you could get a little tripped up with creatinine clearance because yes. creatinine will be decreased, but right. creatinine clearance will be increased. Increase. Right. And I think that's the tricky one there. And I think if you're just kind of speeding through, it's easy to get confused. But yeah, BUN, creatinine will go down, but the clearance is actually increased. So my last category, which is key point five, this is just kind of hodgepodge. These are things that they test that have to do with the physiological changes of pregnancy, but I couldn't really categorize them any other way. So these are the key points I want to make is pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. Um, parturients have an increased plasma volume. Fetal hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen than maternal hemoglobin. And all pregnant women are considered high aspiration risk. So again, hodgepodge category. These are the things like in my hodgepodge that I want you to know. So which of the following conditions is associated with increased bleeding during pregnancy? A, lupus anticoagulant. B, factor five laden mutation. C, protein C deficiency. D, none of the above. And so hopefully um, you recognize that those are things that lead to clotting, not bleeding. And so um, the answer would be none of the above. Um, if you didn't know that, then that's tough because it's really hard to get that question right. It is. And then sometimes in pregnancy, because pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state, it actually sometimes cancels out some of the bleeding things we see, like von Willebrand. So it's important to work with the hematologist when you have women coming in with um, coagulation deficiencies because pregnancy changes it across the board. And no one expects anyone to be an expert. But again, part of anesthesia is knowing when to get a consult. And uh, hematology is one of my favorite consults. <laughs> and I think I'm right, though, right? Aren't those all related they to clotting? Yeah, okay. They are. They're all hypercoagulable states, all those. Yep, exactly. Um, so the next question, a 25-year-old woman is admitted to the hospital in the early stages of labor at term. Her initial hematocrit is 33%. Which of the following is the most likely cause of the hematocrit value? A, decreased erythropoietin activity, B, destruction of erythrocytes by the placenta, C, early placental abruption, D, increased plasma volume, E, iron deficiency. So hopefully you just have in your head, oh, yes, there's this huge increase in plasma volume. There's also an increase in red blood cell volume, but not as much. So you have a physiologic anemia of pregnancy, and you can therefore know that increased plasma volume is the answer here. You yeah. kind of have to know that. Um, you kind of have to know that. But that is but, one of these things that comes up again and again and again. So you do want to remember that. Yeah. So it's not, it's actually like hemoglobins of 11 are really common, 11 and 12. So it's important to not worry about abruption or bleeding or any other issue when you see a hemoglobin that's 11. But a hemoglobin of six, four, five, like that's not normal for sure. Um, 
So which of the following statements is correct in describing differences between fetal and maternal blood during labor? A, fetal blood has a lower hemoglobin concentration than does maternal blood. B, fetal placental blood flow is twice maternal placental blood flow. C, fetal hemoglobin has a greater affinity for oxygen than does maternal hemoglobin. D, the fetal oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is shifted to the right of the maternal oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So hopefully from a variety of different avenues, you should know that fetal hemoglobin does indeed have a greater affinity for oxygen than maternal hemoglobin. This is also why um, people with some hemoglobinopathies will have a higher amount of fetal hemoglobin develop, uh, and that fetal hemoglobin will shift their oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left um, because it has that higher affinity. So if you know that, then you know the answer is C. You also would know that it, D is wrong because it shifted to the left, not the right. Um, Fetal placental blood flow cannot be twice maternal placental it's blood the other flow. Way around, right? Yeah. So maternal placental blood flow is twice that of fetal. Yeah. And then um, fetal blood actually has a very high hemoglobin. It should be like around 15 or 16. It's quite high. Right. All right. So the next question gravid uterine blood flow is A, autoregulated, B, decreased by normotensive epidural analgesia, C, decreased by uterine contractions. D, increase with an increase in maternal PaO2, E, unaffected by alpha adrenergic agonists. I think this is actually a tough one. There's a lot of things in there that, that maybe just make you kind of scratch your head and think I'm not sure. Um, I think what just makes the most sense, though, is that uterine contractions, right, are so intense, you're squeezing those blood vessels so much that you have to imagine that you decrease uterine blood flow. It would be impossible for blood to flow well through these just totally collapsed vessels that are getting squeezed by a uterus during a contraction. So I think you should be able to say, even if the other ones maybe don't make a ton of sense or you're not sure about them, you should be able to say C does seem to be pretty clear. Right. Uh, you, I think, uh, you know, pointed out with your emphasis that normal epidural anesthesia with normotension should not have much of an effect. Um, and uh, and the again, uterus the other is not autoregulated. It's not like the kidney or the brain it doesn't have autoregulation. Right. So your blood pressure goes down, you have decreased perfusion. Um, your blood pressure goes up, you have increased perfusion. And it is affected by alpha adrenergic agonists. So if you give phenylephrine, you actually change your uterine blood flow. That's pretty well established. So the answer there is C, decreased uterine contractions, like you said. So the next question is at term, which of the following would produce the greatest increase in uterine blood flow? A, increasing PaO2 to greater than 100 millimeters of mercury. B, administering, administering sevoflurane to one MAC. C, administering MAG. IV, D, increasing PaCO2 from 35 to 40. Interesting. So we're looking for what would produce the greatest increase in uterine blood flow. We just kind of established that um, uh, it is not auto-regulated. Increasing PaO2 uh, was one of the choices for the other is increased PaO2 doesn't really have much of an effect. Administering SIVO to one MAC is we, you we think going to vasodilate some and so increase flow, assuming that and this is a little, I'm a little skeptical of this question because I think it would probably, I think that's what they're getting at, but I think it would depend on what happens with your blood pressure. So if uh, your blood pressure yeah, fell uh, significantly yeah. due to that SIBO, I'm not sure yeah. that that would be right. Um, giving so mag salt. Yeah. Sorry. You can finish going through the answers and I'll give my thought. Yeah, no, I'm interested to hear what you think. I, I so administering magnesium sulfate, um, intravenously, uh, you know, doesn't, is I think just not going to have as much of an effect um, as 
in terms of vasodilation as giving a MAC of sevoflurane and increasing PaCO2 from 35 to 40. So my what I think they're getting at here is that these things may cause a little bit of vasodilation, but a MAC of sevoflurane is going to cause a lot more. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because you definitely see it from the ICU perspective from someone who has like a gravid uterus in the ICU and I'm looking at it from someone who has like a C-section. So I think the biggest reason why they're asking this question is because someone who had to have a C-section under general anesthesia, you actually want to really limit the amount of volatile anesthetic that they see because it does cause an increase in blood flow. So you get more acne and more bleed. It causes uterine relaxation and increase in blood flow. So you get more bleeding and more acne. So you really want to limit it. So I think that's actually why they're asking the question to see that you know that you want to limit it in a C-section to decrease the amount of bleeding, which is a very different question than someone's like shown up in the ICU who's pregnant with all these things going on. So I, I think that's probably the impetus behind this question. Yeah. Awesome. Which leads into the next one, which is which inhalational anesthetic does not produce uterine relaxation? So A, isoflurane, B, C-beflurane, C, nitrous oxide, D, desflurane. And here, even if you have no idea, you should be able to say which of these things is not like the uh, other. Yeah. All volatile anesthetics are pretty similar in terms of their effects on things like uterine relaxation, uh, SVR, um, cerebral blood flow, et cetera. But nitric ox- nit- nitrous oxide is a very different anesthetic gas. It's not considered one of the truly potent volatiles. So you, even if you didn't know, that's what you should go with. And so the last question and my last kind of key point has to do with the gastric effects of pregnancy. And it's interesting because I feel like this is something we talk a lot about on OB, um, many discussions about minimizing aspiration risks and like decreasing or change, not decreasing, increasing the pH of the gastric context of the stomach. But I actually had a really hard time finding multiple choice questions. So it makes me wonder if this is more like an oral board, like if you see a lot of this conversation in oral board setting, but I know it comes up, but the only written question I could find regarding it is which agent is the most useful for raising the gastric pH just before induction of general anesthesia for an emergency cesarean section. So A, ranitidine, B, sodium citrate, B, um, metaclopramide, E, magnesium hydroxide, and aluminum hydroxide. And I'll tell you, I mean, I know it's sodium citrate just because that's what we always give, but I can't yeah. explain to you why that's better. Do you know? Um, so it neutralizes the pH. So the thought is that pregnant women have pHs that are more acidic. So if you give the sodium citrate, it actually will increase the pH. So if it was like 7 or 6.8, or it'll de- increase it to 7.2. So if you did aspirate, the damage would be much less significant. With that said, it's 30 ml volume, so you increase the volume, but the thought is that the volume isn't nearly as important as the pH. But like I said, I feel like we talk about this all the time, and I I was expecting to find 10, 15 questions just about like the gastric issues, but I do think it's getting more and more controversial, and the papers are really old, and it's, you know, they were actually done in like monkeys 50 years ago, and I think the current literature and thinking is getting away from some of what we used to have as OB dogma. So I think that's probably why they're testing it less because they're not going to test gray areas. It has to be very black and white. You have to have a succinct answer. But I think in an oral board situation, it's not as black and white. They push you into the gray areas. So I mm-hmm. think that's probably where you're going to see more of those. Good. All right. Great. And that wraps it up, right? Yep. Maternal physiology for obstetric anesthesia parts one and two. Great. That was awesome. Thank you, Jillian. Let's do our random recommendations. Do you have something that you've been (laughs) 
that you would recommend to the audience to check out? Yeah, I have too. So you know, I'm a, well, I'm a huge book reader, but lately I've been obsessed with, I don't know how I got onto the Queen's Gambit. No one recommended it to me. I think it was like one of like on my random Netflix recommendation and I watched the first season and I just got hooked. I like chess. I wouldn't say that I'm like obsessed with chess or even a good, I would put my, my, my level at like my kids can beat me at chess. Okay. So like amateur, like beginner level, but it's a really good good series um yeah i keep hearing about it like chess i mean it's very chess heavy but i think it makes you think about this game that's so ancient it's been around for thousands of years and uh you know it's just like a subculture that i don't really have exposure to so i think it was great and then um i've always really liked the crown you know i lived i so i actually lived in england um i was there when princess diana got married Mm. uh and this current season of the crown is with the princess diana so um i've how to, I mean, I've always liked The Crown, but I think the series is best. But if you're looking for a really good book, um, I really recommend Sapiens. Have you heard about it? it I think I want a Pulitzer Prize. So, you know, in the world, if you look at the genus and species, you pick any genus, um, there are multiple species. But if you look at the genus Homo, Homo, the only species that has survived is Sapiens. So like Homo erectus, Homo the Neanderthal, like all the other homos were the only ones of our species that have survived. So the whole book is like, why did Homo sapiens survive and not the other genus of mm. Homo? Fascinating. It's a really good book. So okay. you got some downtime. Holidays are coming up. Even, even if it's like post-holidays, you're getting into spring break. It's a great read. Nice. Well, that's great. Um, and I'm going to take a little detour to something unusual that I have. I usually would recommend a book or a TV show, but I actually have been having a lot of fun. I got a little pretty cheap golf mat like that you can hit golf balls off um, (laughs) and some wiffle golf balls um, online and I have been going out with my daughters all three of them even the two-year-old and we have just this you can get like a little kids golf club and just going out and it's great because I'll tell you I get to hit some and they actually have fun running around the yard picking them up and then they love just swinging a club at him. Even the two-year-old, she just thinks it's the most fun thing in the world to just get to whack at balls with this <laughs> stick. Um, and so it's actually so a ton of fun. Like, is it like putt-putt? You're actually using like full-size? No, it's a mat like you hit off. Like you can hit any club you want off it. So you can even put a tee in it and hit a driver. Uh, but, you you know, you most of the time you'd hit irons and you just – hit them off the mat and they, because it's a wiffle ball, like a little wiffle golf ball, it doesn't go very far. So this is like you know, five just, words that mean nothing to me, like iron, tea, long drive. Okay. Ball. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But if you have any interest in golf and if you've got kids, uh, they might have a blast if you, if you do it with them. I have to go, All right. It's a good Christmas gift, right? Yeah, totally. All right, Jillian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And to our listeners, uh, you'll be listening to this after Thanksgiving. So hope you had a great one. But Jillian, thanks for coming back on the show. Anytime. Take care. All right. That was great. Always fun to do keyword episodes with Dr. Isaac. Thanks so much for your thoughts. You can go to the website at grack.com where you can leave a comment. Others can read and learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can also join the Facebook ACRAC group. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, 
please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And that makes a big difference. We really appreciate it, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who've already made donations and are already patrons. We really, really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, who is our tech lead, to April Liu, who does the social media management, and, of course, to Dr. Kimia Kashkuli, who still helps out with some of the outlines for the episodes. They are all superstars. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolfaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.